Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's performance will feature Greek gods, demon dogs, and a manic-energied discussion of sexy Jesus poetry. All this and more as we talk lilies on Created Things. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Created Things, a podcast of Catholic creatives, the only podcast hosted by two men who not only can be described as lily-livered, but also who are putting the pow and flower power. Uh, I am Jacob Flores Popcheck, artist and psychotherapist. With me is my good and excellent friend, Catholic priest and medievalist, Father Gabriel Toretta. How are you doing today, Father? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I need, I feel like I need an adjective on medievalist, you know, like Catholic priest, burgeoning medievalist. Burgeoning? Can I burgeon? Is that okay? May I burgeon? You you have the floor to burgeon. My goodness, they, wow. Sir. Thank you. That I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And then yeah. I could be bur- burgeoning priest, Catholic medievalist, yeah. like you just the, swap uh, things around. The medievalist from Washington has the floor. Has to the floor? Yes, yes. <laughs> I... Is there a way to do that bit without doing like a southern? I'm just a small town lawyer, but I kn- and I don't know a thing or two about fancy dancing. But what I do know is <laughs> <laughs> what I do know is about how to burgeon. <laughs> yeah, just like just like fingering suspenders. Yeah, suspenders are a big part of this. Yeah, 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 really big part of the southern lawyer cliche. Yeah. Think. I mean, yeah, I, uh, I went to a concert the other day, uh, where like, you know, I mean, um, any kind of concert, uh, that, that, that's not by like Bach or Beethoven, you know, um, you sort of get wanded, uh, going in and, uh, uh, I was just like walking up the stairs, uh, and I just happened to turn around when I, when I heard this real big dude in the, uh, who was entering had apparently just set off the thing. And I just heard him say with with just the most immense pride, I heard this really distinctive and characteristic like snap and he goes, I got suspenders. Oh, he just said that out loud. Yeah. That's delightful. That's, I thought, this is great. Like, of course, you're wearing suspenders to a Godspeed You Black Emperor concert. And like, I uh, I love everything about this. And I love how happy you are about the fact that you set off this alarm because you're wearing suspenders. You know, like this is I just only perfect. Wear, so I have two uh, three-piece tweed suits because I'm obnoxious. And I like to imagine that I'm an Irish socialist in the 1800s. And I only don't wear... Don't we all? Um, don't we all? when things were good and right um but i like i i only wear suspenders with those because you don't want to be like adjusting your pants under your vest the whole time but the unspoken like tweed kind of three-piece suits are considered especially like post peaky blinders like very much thought of as this like masculine old world thing no no because they are they have they come with them the terrible indignity that women experience when they wear like um like onesie jumpers, like the like boho girl onesie jumpers, which is that you basically have to take off all of your clothes in the bathroom stall in order to use the toilet. That like, is incredible. You are sick, I, like, I've never like what what's what's the characters? I I don't think I understand how the how the object works, like how the garment works. Well, because like so you take off, you, you can't pull on your pants with your suspenders on. 
Oh, so with the suspenders. To, yeah, right. Of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You yeah, take yeah. off your suit jacket. Then you take off your, your vest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yeah. you pull off the suspenders. Then you drop your and like you are the, by this point like nigh shivering and nude in the cold. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just bathroom. have to really hope that like the bathroom that you that you're using has like like nobody has broken off the coat hanger uh, on the inside of the door. Which P.S. They probably have. Uh, right. You know. Yeah. I've told a story in this podcast before about um, like almost drowning when I was going to see some sea turtles and um, yeah, another, the end of this story is that I ended up in a bathroom. It was not a bathroom. It was a outhouse built in a tree, so mm. a treehouse outhouse and small children were peeking under the stall where I was shivering and nude and were throwing rocks over the top of the stall at my head, screaming obscenities at me while I was in the bathroom. So like this, I feel like was wait, a complete trauma experience. Like yeah, I really appreciate that. This is, this is, this is, this is complete, you know, like some yeah. people have traumatic experiences, which are bad, you know, but like are partial, like, I feel like this, this was able right. to just bring in everything, which is very, beautiful. it really checked off all the boxes, which is why, you know, wearing all comes back around to why being a little Southern lawyer who wears suspenders is, is kind of not a career option for me because I, I would be triggered every <clears throat> single time I went to the bathroom, which so. is why, um, when you want to feel like an Irish socialist from the 1920s, you just like wear the cap that you're currently wearing. Okay. So this is not an Irish flat cap. What I'm currently wearing. This is a, like captain's hat it's like a tiki captain's hat captain oh excuse me yes it's a tiki i wear this i wear this for two reasons one i wear this when i go to like a rum distillery because i'm a big Mm. i don't so that you're a tiki captain yeah i don't like scotch i love small craft rum i'm a huge fan of small craft rum um i can always tell you where the best rum distillery is in any city and then the other reason i wear it and the more realistic reason is when i have a bad hair day and Mm. i didn't want to go on this podcast having a terrible hair day so i put my little captain's hat on because it was the most readily available hat there it is see we have solved many mysteries this afternoon and i appreciate that and this has been created things go forth no i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) that would be kind of great just have like a like a five minute episode that has like literally no point it's like no seinfeld as as a podcast (laughs) (laughs) oh god can you imagine how terrible that would be I can at least imagine an episode, like if they remade Seinfeld now, where one of the characters started a podcast. Oh, for sure. Probably, oh, for probably sure. Kramer would have a podcast, right? Yeah, obviously. And like, like say a really inappropriate things. And like, yeah. this would be, maybe even the conceit would would be Jerry wasn't doing stand-up anymore. Maybe like, instead of opening and closing the episode on a stage, it would open and close the episode in his little podcast studio. And he'd be riffing there. And then they'd cut to the story that, hmm, hmm. John Mulaney, are you listening? Do you want to rip off Seinfeld again? You could try again. You could uh, take that, that plot conceit free of charge. Any hoodle on a poodle. What do you want to talk about today? Father Gabriel, I'm not going to shamelessly force a transition here. I want you to just line it up. Cause I'm too tired um, to come up with a transition. Yeah. Well, oh gosh. But what about the shamelessly forced transition? This is like a whole All right, fine. Um, all right, I'll do it. Um, speaking <laughs> of being cowardly in bathrooms because of trauma, um, we are going to talk about being lily livered today. And by lily livered, I mean talking about lilies. Talking yeah. about lilies. Was See that, how you did it? That Isn't that awful nice? Enough for Don't you, you feel better? I feel better. I feel objectively and like observably, measurably worse. Good. That's good. I feel like as long as I feel better and you feel worse, I feel like I have achieved my goals for the day. Yeah, um, that is the point of organized religion. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm a priest. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we want to talk about lilies. Um, and the, I want to talk about lilies, I don't know, for 
a number of reasons. Um, well, I mean, the least of which, I mean, by the by the time of posting, we are we are in Holy Week, so a blessed yeah. Holy Week, a blessed Triduum to you all. We that oh that should have been my intro. We put the yum in Triduum. Mm, that would have been the like that would have been. That would have been the lazily homoerotic brand that I have have built. Which for is your brand? That yeah, that's nice. your brand. Yeah, yeah. that would have been mm-hmm. good. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is this is. Uh, yeah. You can be more on brand next time. Let's let's delete everything we just did. Let's go back from square one. Do it all again. I'll open that way, and we can transition right into the list. Okay. The listeners will be like, I'm not really sure we're missing anything, but uh, yeah, why, <laughs> we, why why don't they do that? Yeah, perfect. Um, no, so yeah, ha- uh, happy and blessed Holy Week to you all. Um, perhaps you guys are listening to this on your way to um, to Stations of the Cross. Perhaps you're listening to this while tying your bow tie or, who knows, putting on your suspenders, put your fancy suit on as you go to Easter Vigil. Make sure you maybe. use the bathroom first. Right, yeah. Otherwise Hot trauma. Tip, life hack, <laughs> otherwise trauma. Um, and chances are, right, when you go to church, especially around Easter time, you're going to see a whole bunch of lilies. And, uh, that's, that's the main inspiration for us wanting to do this, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, that's, that's the main one. Also, um, the not unconnected fact, uh, that like, if you ever walk through, especially a medieval, um, art gallery, but, uh, but even more modern stuff, I. Uh, all kinds of Christian art images are just absolutely like chaka block with lilies. Mm-hmm. There's this thing about um, there's this thing about Christian art that I think is really cool in general, which is that like um, a lot of the things that that at least my experience I have felt like I just sort of trained my eye to kind of pass over and not really notice uh, turn out to be like very significant and like they're like they're obviously like there for a reason and have uh, often some somewhat set meaning and sometimes like variable meaning or whatever. Um, but like flowers are distinctly really, really distinctly this way. Like flowers in Christian art is, you know, like actually too big of a topic for one thing. So we're just, oh, we're yeah, just talking no about lilies, way. you know. Um but <clears throat> I don't know. <clears throat> like just as um you know, like I, I never did any gardening growing up. I was like always kind of bad at trying to raise anything. And um I don't know, I just from out of my own neglect, I never really learned all called the names of like plants and flowers and these things you know there's like a whole there's like a whole book that somebody has uh has 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 collected of um uh flora from the lord of the rings like because oh, tolkien well they actually do a pretty good job of it like so, tolkien they're you can't tell me they did. There's no way that's not cringe as all hell. I'm it's sorry actually, that's it's, cringe. It's actually really lovely cuz they like take cuz you know tolkien has this really uh, a expansive knowledge of just um he just kind of knows all the flora of england basically uh and it's just happy to kind of name them whenever and they're not just randomly named like they're there um i mean it's not symbolic or anything but just there but you know they're in the right place where they should be in the right time when they should be and all that kind of stuff seasonally and locationally and everything um but you know just who knows like i don't know what a cowslip look like looks like but like you read cowslip appear in books all the time it's the no it's the pink sort of negligee that certain breeds of oxen wear um, yeah oh right of course yes yeah. right yeah right this is it's yeah for uh, right that makes sense but they're having a, a like a romantic oxen evening in you know yeah yeah 
Exactly right. Title of our forthcoming children's book, A Romantic <laughs> Oxen's Evening In. Evening In. Um, uh. Yeah, but in the end, like, the guy who made this book actually made it a little bit like, um, well, so they, like, they're, um, these actually really lovely, very well uh, illuminated kind of like Audubon, Audubon school style um uh illustrations Ooh, of the, i do love those I'm like beautiful beautiful those. beautiful hand done um illuminations and so they're in the end the book is, has a distinct feel of like um allow me to explain the more familiar with the less familiar which is what i like to do um it has a distinct feel of this uh ninth century book by Wallafid strabo uh the de hortalis the on raising gardens um you absolute tosser yeah i did it i did it i did it i did it uh you know where he just like i do the same thing but i hate when other people do it because i I see myself in the reflection of their bad behavior it's important to flag it you know like i realize that you are basically already from like we have gotten to the point where you're almost familiar with what i've just said and now we need like one last very familiar thing to clinch it and i will remember what you just said so i'm gonna instead give you something that's incredibly obscure and that you is relevant but will not help you at all like these are the best have, kind of examples. I have one or two very like clients whose psych clients whose interests are totally divergent from mine. Um, and I will often try to explain certain psychological problems with like a certain movie scene. And I remember I was like, um, well, it's like in, uh, it's like, have you ever seen like parks and recreation? It's when this character, I've never seen parks and recreation. Okay. Um, and then I had the balls to like, and then just the total idiocy to say like, okay, well there's this like indie film with Nicolas Cage where they do the same thing. And oh no. Why would you, why would you think that if I hadn't seen the first one, I saw the second one? And it's, I'm like, you know what? That's totally fair. That's on me. I apologize. It's all fair. <laughs> but you should watch Pig. Just drop everything you're doing and watch Pig. Have you freaking watched Pig yet? I haven't watched Pig yet. I confess. Dude, it's so I know literally the very first episode I talked about how great pig is and it's so so like on the money for everything this podcast is about that I truly want to do a whole episode just on pig because it literally is like the moral of the story is the moral of this podcast and I just want so badly for you to watch it and to do a review I want you to watch that I want you to watch green Knight, and you and these are the two movies I want to do in this podcast and you have not watched them yeah and that's it makes right me so sad I do it. I do it to maintain power. Because right. if I gave in yeah. to what you wanted, you know that like that we would just right. be like then friends. I have the upper you know, hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I need there to like be this really sick dichotomy that we have. Yeah, I just but, think it's um, important. Yeah. Speaking of totally sick things, you were mentioning like the Autobahnerflagen Schnagen of of like botanical illustration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so that's all that. That's all. That's all the big side note. So to say that like. um basically if you if you walk through like the medieval part of any local like whatever museum you have in town um uh and you just start paying attention to the flowers like basically you're gonna see a ton of lilies probably a bunch of roses but roses that's another topic we're not talking about roses tonight um they uh but you're just gonna see a ton of lilies everywhere um and it just seems like actually that's worth kind of thinking about like there are a great many flowers um, and a great many flowers that are really striking and very beautiful, um, including ones that have, you know, for instance, like stronger, stronger scent. Right. Um, the lily uh, has a, has a has a scent that's quite beautiful, but it's but it's relatively mild. Um, the lily is a beautiful flower, but uh, but there are lots of beautiful flowers um, and like it grows lots of places, but so do lots of flowers. So like just like where does this come from? Like, why does this get latched onto so dramatically? Um, where does it come from? Where does it go? How does it get there? Colin how Joe? does it get there? Um, 
So one place it comes from. Uh, well, can is, I, before you before you start, can I can I geez, throw in just a, a thought here? Because I don't know if we're going to have time to get to this, but it's this is like lilies for me. I mean, I'm familiar with them in religious art. I'm familiar with them in some other religious contexts, but I think most people when they hear lilies in art are going to maybe go to one of two places, which I would like to at least touch on here, which is Monet's water lilies. Oh, right. right where sure. you think about those, right? And they're, I mean, lilies are a big motif in, because I assume because they're a big motif in Christian art, then they become a motif in like lots of other art forms, um, including this two, this the series of 250 oil paintings that Monet does in the last 30 years of his life where he has horrible cataracts and he's painting like these gorgeous, and there was, and, and because there are 250 of them, like a lot of different museums have an installation of them. So I had one in Pittsburgh growing up that I would just sit and stare at and like mimic and try to like hone my craft looking at. So that's one of the places because a lot of people are keenly aware of water lilies if they're aware of art at all. Um, and then the other one is is lilies in, in Asian art, like specifically Chinese oh, and, sure, and I yeah. assume yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, Japanese yeah. art as well. And that I actually know a little bit more about. So that's interesting to me too, that, that lilies have this big motif in Christian art, but then are revisited by so many other sort of proliferations of art. And I'm not going to say that the Chinese lilies are taken from that, of course, but they are this theme that's revisited more than maybe any other flower in this really, really interesting way that I've never been able to put my finger on. So I'm really kind of excited to get into this episode because it might actually teach me something on this. I don't know. Yeah, That's just what yeah, I want to throw no, in before I feel, I feel we got hardcore yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I feel really similarly. That's really great. Um, and some of that stuff I don't know much about. So that'll be, that'll be great to talk about. Um, well, like one, I mean, again, like ultimately where is this coming from? I mean, ultimately it's coming from because they, they just grow lots of places and they're very beautiful. Um, I, that's, that's just human experience is, is, is the sort of major motive drama of this. Um, uh, but heading like really early in Christian Christian artistic um, experience and like Christian meditation, so like um, a lot of the early Christian writers, uh, bishops and theologians and thinkers um, are talking a lot about lilies um, from very early on. Um, again, partly because like you 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 uh, you try to reason from your experience You try to reason from things that you're more familiar with to give like analogies for understanding Christ and all that kind of stuff. But one big place that it comes from, um, is my friend, the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, it's great. Um, it's you mean the, the Bibli? El Bible? El Bible. Yes, it is. Um, so, and there's this passage in, uh, on the, uh, from the song of songs, um, chapter two, verse one through two, uh, that says, I am oh, a rose. Oh, so you're going in hot. If there are any non-Catholics reading, <laughs> you're not going to like this part of the Bible. Is Song of Songs in the, in the Protestant Bible? It is, it is, it is, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, the one that they took out? Oh, no, Tobit is the one they took out. Uh, Tobit, there's a, there's a bunch, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, um, of but... the, I always confuse the romantic ones, because Tobit's romantic oh, and, sure. and, and, and Song of Songs romantic, so I always get confused. Never mind, Protestants, Never you can mind. still listen. I you apologize. can still listen. Yeah, in fact, Martin You're Luther, Martin, Martin Luther uh, gave it the, he invented a name for it. That's the name that they still use in German, period, like in any, any German, oh, really? the Hohenlied, uh, the, like, the, the high, high song, you know, um, oh, cool, very beautiful. Cool. The great, the great song. Um, right, I apologize Protestants for triggering and blaspheming you. Please forgive me. 
Protestants, we forgive him. Um, the Catholic priest speaks in persona Protestanti. Um, that's how we do. Uh, so it goes like this. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. So like the way that the Song of Songs works, the way it was. Um, so I don't know Hebrew. I will never know Hebrew, but my friends who know Hebrew tell me that one thing that's really interesting about Hebrew is that um, uh, pronouns themselves uh, have gender that communicate like like the the, um, the second person singular you has a pronoun that co- has a gender to it that communicates um, the person, you know, yes, so I like, do actually know this. I do actually know this part. Yeah, this is actually very, very cool. Um, yeah, which is really neat. Study like forget his name um i have it on my shelf but i read this jewish scholar who's one of the only guys to like translate the entire like only one of the only single translations of the old testament oh yeah robert Alter, he's the best thank yeah. you yes yeah, and yeah, like robert his Alter. his uh i have his psalms and uh his his psalms like are very rich with this where he's he's deducing a lot about what the poetry is referring to based on the inherent gender of of the various uh verbiages yeah um, exactly so like, like so this, this is yeah. really rich um and uh, um, so we, there's clearly some kind of conversation happening in the Song of Songs. Um, but I guess if, you, if you're reading it in Hebrew, you can tell that there's a, there's a you speaking to a woman and then there's a you speaking to a man. Um, so mm-hmm. this, so in uh, once it's translated into Latin, you lose all or most languages that are in Hebrew, you lose all that stuff. And so like a lot of medieval um manuscripts of uh, of the Song of Songs will just have like, um uh maybe it'll be like um c and e next to things like like um lines like dialogue so like right christ they'll, and then, they'll make it like a script yeah yeah like christ and then the church and they'll just mark it so this is christ and this is ecclesia this is christ in the church christ in the church or it'll be like um um christ and the, and the and the bride and the bride and bridegroom these kinds of things anyway so but it's neat so but the point is right. it's, a, it's a conversation back and forth between like a bride and the bridegroom and um of, yeah and it's uh, a very intimate conversation about not only like their their desire for one another but also you know the the sort of ways that desire leads them and the the sort of movements towards the divine that they experience as a result yeah. of that desire it's a very like holy text and then you know we of course interpret this not only as sort of a a codex for what healthy and holy and fulfilled sexual love and sexual desire look like in an earthly way but of course we also see it primarily and analogously as a as a story about christ's longing for his people the church and and us longing in return for him and him as our bridegroom and us as his bride so there's a lot of a lot of layers to this this old poem yeah which is just i mean it's just it's it is my favorite book of the Bible, and we just have to be okay with that. It's just the best. But um, I mean, I'm if not it's not person. if it's not someone's favorite book of the Bible, I honestly question them. It's like, I who are you? Who I met you someone think whose favorite are? book of the Bible was Revelation, and I was like, we can't be friends, probably. It's like, I just need to. I'm going to call the police. <laughs> Step one, call the police. Step two, what? Step three, okay. Okay, can you imagine good. the no like? Judgment. Can you imagine like the civil engineer who's listening right now, and he's like, my favorite book of the Bible is Numbers, and <laughs> I've got numbers. <laughs> everyone loves numbers um yeah that'd be great uh so like but that's what this this thing so right i am a rose of sharon a lily of the valleys and then as a lily among brambles so is my love among maidens right so you've got the i and then you've got like the the maiden the so is my love so then you've got the you so you have both 
it's one voice, but speaking about both like figures in the piece. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's basically from, from this, if from nothing else, I mean, there's plenty of other places in the Bible that talk about lilies um, because again, like the scriptures are using um, kind of things that are very familiar to reason about God. Um, And, uh, but above all, it's this because like, um, Christians are obsessed with the Song of Songs, like from the very beginning, from the very beginning, everyone's obsessed with the Song of Songs. So like um, Origen in the second into the third century has this really important commentary on the on the Song of Songs. And then like everyone does after him. And it's just it's just everybody's obsessed with it because it's so good. It's so it's such this perfect um, like 10 page encapsulation of the entire spiritual life and who Christ is and like the the human life of you know it's just everything you know so mm-hmm. um so they like a really rapidly gets read that okay like i am a lily of the valley so like very right away you get this idea of christ and the lily they would say this is the voice of the of the bridegroom speaking this is the voice of christ speaking um so christ identifies himself as the lily yeah yeah and a lily not just a lily but because lilies, I mean, gardeners, so I, I did garden growing up and like lilies always grow in a cluster. They, they do not really grow on their own. They tend to spread quite thickly. And so putting a lily as a solitary flower in within a context of brambles, a very sort of diamond in the rough type of uh, an imagery, I mean, is, is particularly provocative using that flower, right? So mm. that, that says something too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because you, you, because yeah, you're right. Like it's always a, it's always it always grows in with a bunch, you know. Right. So um, I'm a lily among the brambles. Is you know, there's a, there's a uniqueness being spoken to. There's a, there's a, you know, well, I mean, a story about Christ being told and and how he stands apart, but among and and these sorts of things. Yeah, and then and then the but also the uh, the lily among part um, is something that's really significantly tied to because then that's that's a description of his love among maidens um and uh and so then that eventually actually much later the thing with the thing with christ is the the identification between christ and the and the voice that says i am the lily of the, i am a lily of the valley um that gets that's like right away in the christian experience it's just like yep that's christ done um, but then <laughs> check that one off. Check. Move on to this whole deer running past a stream thing. Yeah, it's That's like my one. heart passing for hearts. It's all it's amazing. <laughs> um, and uh, but then it's it's really not until like the eighth century. Um, this guy named Paul the Deacon. Um, guess what? His name's Paul. He's a deacon. They couldn't Hi, really. I'm Paul. I'm Paul the Deacon. <laughs> You might know me as the Deacon. Um, he uh, sounds like a wrestler name. It, the Deacon. The Deacon. Well, he's from. Welcome um, to the stage, brother. The Deacon. Well, the ring. He, That's the stage. The ring. Excuse the me. The ring. Thank you. Fans, yeah, please. Please. It's not a stage. It's not acting. It's real. Um, <laughs> he's from like uh, kind of central eastern Italy, so from Benevento. Um, so I'm not really sure. He was a bit of a brawler, um, in point of fact. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe so. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he, he communicates this idea of, um, that this is the Virgin Mary, right? So now like you have this really strong association between like the voices in the song of songs are like Christ and the Virgin Mary, that it's, um, that it's sure. the Virgin Mary who's, um, like the perfect, 
uh, participator in Christ, the perfect imitator of Christ, the perfect encapsulator of the, of the church, etc. Right. Um, so well, she wanna... is the one who's the lily among thorns. Is the idea right? And I wanna I wanna dig into that because so my whole, as you know, uh, and has caused you some wariness when you first met me. I'm one of those mm-hmm. annoying like theology of the body millennials. Um, yeah. Just, like, sort yeah. Of it's whole... just a thing, man. Gosh. Well, I mean, I I would like to believe I'm not one of those theology of the body millennials in the same way I would like to believe I'm not one. I'm not like other girls, right? I in in that I don't inherently just uh, say that theology of the body is uh, old school evangelical. Uh, purity culture with JP2 slapped onto it. Yeah, and yeah, I also yeah, don't yeah, yeah. exclusively speak in italics, which is something that I feel like all kind of TOB millennials do. But um, I, Theology of the Body was my whole kind of background. Um, and this, of course, as I've said before on the podcast, is Pope St. John Paul II's reflections on um, desire on human sexuality, on the physical capacity for love and how this uh, leads us to... Um, through through kind of divine consecration of our desire to to God, um, that's like the very shorthand version of this. And and this this idea, what you're saying of Mary as the lily, is like hardcore to all of these these writings. So you and I are now speaking in a depth that we both kind of know a lot about, and are gonna we we're gonna be in danger of using a lot of shorthands that might um, um, alienate people who maybe aren't as familiar with those shorthands. So can you, when you say that Mary, if you can give like a three sentence thing, when you say that Mary in relationship to Christ is kind of this microcosm of the church. And then that's why we can say that this bridegroom's love for his bride, the church is symbolic in Christ's relationship with Mary. I mean, there are going to be people who balk at that because well, Jesus is Mary's son. Well, that sounds weird. Why yeah, this, this relationship weird. Um, Wait a second. I, I can speak to the church like being Mary and Mary being the church, but but I, I want to give you a shake at it first just because I, I really don't want to alienate people and I feel like this conversation has gotten too deep already. Yeah, right. No, exactly. Um, yeah, so um, partly again, as we say, we we always try to, we try to reason from experience. So like in this experience that's given to us, this like memory of the church in the gospels, um, we see that Mary has this sort of wildly conspicuous place in the church's memory, like the very beginning of the church's memory, um, that there's sort of, she's sort of way too much there. She's way too present to be, she's not just like some kind of random woman, um, not even just like a powerful woman. In fact, there's no indication of that at all. Um, so she's really central. She seems to be really central to how Christ is presented to the world, um, the first time that uh, that Christ works a miracle in the Gospel of John uh, is because Mary um, asks him to, like she recognizes a need um, and uh, and asks that he would he would help. Um, and uh, so she's just sort of right at the beginning of uh, Christ presenting himself publicly to the world, um, and then like right at at the end of him presenting himself publicly to the world uh on the cross she's present uh and his last some of his last words are directed to her giving the whole world um her as a mother um so he says you know he's uh from the cross he speaks to one of his disciples and he says you know behold your mother um and to his mother he says behold your son so somehow like the whole the whole world is given mary as a mother um Mm -hmm. and then after the resurrection, um, when uh, uh, Christ 
is with his disciples for 40 days and then ascends physically into heaven and then um, says that he was going to send the Holy Spirit down um, to be with them forever. And um, and at this moment when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, um, uh, Mary is also there um, and that she is somehow at the heart of this moment where not just like Christ is uh, presents himself publicly to the church to the world but then where the church is for the first time presented publicly to the world like mary is also at the center there mm-hmm. um so there's like just very clearly just if you just looking at the scriptures um there's something really dramatic here about a profoundly central place for her um as how christ is given to the world um, sure Sure. And if and like when we say like church and the church, it's you know, I too, a little bit too readily think of like institutions and you're not my dad and you know <laughs> like took yeah. jabs. Um, but I uh, but like we when we say the church, we mean like the continuing presence of Jesus Christ, you know, and that right. like and and the, our communal response to him in love. Yeah, and like yeah. the the gospels and the Acts of the Apostles just like can't let go of the Virgin Mary as being like the way, like the sort of central to the way in which this happens. Well, I, and I'll add my two cents to this. I mean, you know, so as a psychotherapist, specifically working with, you know, primarily Catholics, I will often bring up um, this this theory. Although I'd say it's more than a theory because it's observably true throughout the Gospels that any anything that we could possibly go through, any suffering we could go through in this life, Christ went through. Any anything that we could experience, Christ can show us how to experience that in a holy way. He shows us how to experience the full gamut of human emotion, whether it's as we were talking about in the fake saints episode, you know, rage at the moneylenders or, you know, uh, sadness, mourning, grief with the death of Lazarus or, you know, joy with his friends, you know, or tiredness and needing to relax. So he shows us the full gamut of human emotion. He shows us what it's like to be betrayed in a holy way, what it's like to be in pain in a holy way, what it's like to be impoverished in a holy way. I go as far, and this is perhaps controversial to say, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, when, when the, when the gospels say during passion week that he is literally stripped and mocked. I mean, uh, you know, Christ shows us how to, you know, or, or at least has undergone in you know, first uh, sexual trauma, right? So, so Christ kind of has done everything that he could expect us to do. What's the one thing that Christ cannot show us how to do, how to be in relationship with him, right? Mary is the one who shows us how to perfectly be in relationship with him. And so the one thing that we can't look to Christ for just by nature of the fact that he cannot be in relationship with himself in an incarnate, like as a human, like Mary steps in and shows us how to do that. And how does she do that? Right. She, she literally carries him within her and first Joseph, her husband, who we believe, you know, was celibate with her. And then John, you know, operate as these first priests guarding the tabernacle as it were. Tabernacle is the thing we keep the Eucharist in. We believe the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ fully, you know, there and present, you know, so we keep it in this box and Mary is this box, right? She is the Ark of the Covenant. She is the tabernacle and these priests of first, you know, her husband, Joseph, and then John at the cross when he is promised to her, you know, become the guardians of this tabernacle, right? And so both in terms of the fact that she is the perfect tabernacle who carries Christ in her the way we would all ideally hope to carry Christ within ourselves. And also, um, insofar as 
Jesus can't show us how to be in relationship with him through his own actions. Only she can. I think she, that's another, that's a, maybe a more sort of like behavioral or experiential explanation for why we consider her sort of the microcosmic prototype of what it is to say the church. I don't know. Would you call in a question anything I just said there? Or you no, think no, 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 no. That's, 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 that's a really, that's a really helpful point. That's a really helpful point. And like, and then it's just, it, but like, so Christians are so into this, you know, that like, I love the way in which it all, you also see it in this artistic thing about just like with these lilies, right? You just think like, sure, well, yeah. it's just, there's flowers, like who cares? But like, but they are literally their first Christ's. And then he gives them to Mary. Like, this is how it works in art history. And like, theologically speaking, of course, like, this is how we, this is what we believe about Mary, that like, everything is Christ's first and he gives it to Mary. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so anything, anything that's said about Mary is said about Christ, you know, because um, mm. everything, everything good that she has is Christ's um, and, um, and because of Christ. And like, uh, and that's like, that's really wild that like, it, you know, so Lily's like, they start out with this idea um I actually don't. I'd be curious if you know anything about this. I don't know. I mean, how symbols get associated is a very is a very is a very murky waters. Um, but very early on, they get associated with like holiness, of course, um, and then purity, um, uh, and then like chastity and sexual chastity and these kinds of things. Um, well, yeah. So, I mean, the little I know on that. So, I I want to be careful because the the series i'm sort of most excited and it won't be a direct series we're going to sort of like dip into it and dip out of it but the series i'm most excited for off air spoiler here um is that we're going to father gabriel and i are going to do like a little series on this podcast about just colors like we're going to do a whole episode on like the color white for instance and a lot of what we'll say about the color white in in art history both in and outside of the church um can be said about lilies too right so because in insofar as you know they are mostly and most commonly white so within you know chinese tradition white is the color of death um and then in in kind of western tradition white is the color of purity because it's clean you know for obvious reasons right but then lilies if you look at them um and they'll be different different colors i mean obviously there are water lilies and tiger lilies and things like this with flashes of orange but you know the most common lilies that people at this time would have been accustomed to and then certainly like the easter lily that you're going to see on your altar um this week uh are white with sort of these speckles of red and pink along them right so there's in the medieval conception and i would argue in the catholic conception period um the incarnation that is god becoming man in christ is like a little rock that you drop into a pond Right. And there's this immediate splash that's the things closest to him as he sort of to use uh, uh, annoying overused like graphic design buzzwords. He disrupts creation. Right. Ooh, so the disrupt. so the initial splash. Yeah. The initial <laughs> splash is the resurrection. Right. This is the ultimate disruption of nature. But then, you know, there are rings extending out from that that splash reverberations of the incarnation throughout all of all of creation um, and all of nature forever. Um, and the medieval conception was to basically take this idea and apply it to literally everything so that we have bestiaries, we have botanical encyclopedias where, you know, some monk or nun is going out with their watercolors and they are literally painting every animal that they have ever heard of, some that they've never seen, right? Whether that's because it's in Africa and you should look if you want to kick, 
you know, look up, you know, medieval depictions of elephants because they're freaking hilarious they're the best. or, or whether it's because that animal turns out to be fictional, like a griffin. Right. And they will just record. Don't every you dare. Some of my best friends are griffins. <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear you say that's like, a, that's the kind of shit I would say. Um, but, um, but yeah, they'll, they will like sort of list animal fun facts and genus and all these scientific things, but they will end with, and this is how it teaches us something about Christ. So we get this with like pelicans where they're like, oh, pelicans teach us something about the Eucharist or, and, and this happens with flowers. We've talked on this podcast before about how like passion fruit literally have sort of the cross on them and they're sweet and they drip, you know, these, these rich juices. And so they're, they become associated with the actual crucifixion, the bleeding of Christ and the, the stigmata and things of this sort. And then lilies are very much the same way right if you if you view everything in the world as intentionally symbolic as intentionally representative of the artist god who made it <gasps> then then um you're gonna see a white purity flower with red speckles on it and you're gonna say holy shit that's uh that's the crucifixion like that's right and if and and then like you have this this passage in the bible where like christ says i am the lily of the valley Right. right. He says like, right. it's me, it's me. And you're just like, well, that's well, right. cool. I and can the, see why it is because, right. you know, yeah. And the context of that line, again, as we already said, is in romantic poetry is in this, you know, romantic exchange between a husband and a wife, between God and his lover, humanity, the church. And, and so we're seeing that, okay, Christ is the lily. There's an inherently romantic context to the lily. There's an inherently sort of desirous, amorous context to the lily. And then we see it's white, has these speckles. So then that ties into what we observe as, and this is again, a big theology of the body point. I did not know how theology of the body this episode was going to get when we began. Um, but this is a big point about theology of the body, right? That, that, or in theology of the body, that, that Christ on the cross, this is the marriage bed of the church right? Where he's, he's giving his body fully over to his bride, the church. And so there's this romantic amorous subtext to that in a beautiful, pure way that, you know, gets connected in this nice little triad with the lily too, where it's like, oh, romantic flower, you know, uh, passion, passion and death, speckling the white with red. It's all very wibbly wobbly, timey wimey to use the Doctor Who terminology, but, but it all comes back to this idea of total, you know, I say romantic, but really in, in, you know, church language, you know, Eros, right. Erotic capital E, um, theming and, and, uh, symbology symbolism with, with the Lily and, and these kinds of ideas. I feel like I I'm high right now. I promise I'm not, but these, that's, these are all the things that are coming into my head. That's Hey, you know what? <clears throat> this is just, this is what happens. When you think about lilies, man. They just, you go crazy. You're crazy. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, in point of fact, like you do actually see that with, um, yeah, and you. you but the, the thing is, like, you're you're not going crazy, although although you are not going crazy because because uh, you do actually see all of this specifically like playing out, not just in Christian thought, but in Christian thought, like that's that's visually depicted, you know. So like uh, in art, so like um, one, so just like the the tur the circle gets totally looped basically when um, in like the eighth century. Um, this really boss dude in England, uh, Bede, Venerable Bede, uh, he starts writing about um, the lily as, as associated with the resurrection. Like, so mm. for him, this is this profound, like, uh, symbol. Um, 
and it's got everything you just said, right? I mean, so it's got it's got it's got blood and it has wounds and it has like um the it has you know with the pistols and stuff like it sort of has like nails uh um and it's lily white and it's pure, you know. Right, um, yeah. Um, Which is interesting cuz like we don't I want to cut back cuz I said in Chinese thought and I think I probably know a lot more about I'm like I know a lot about theology of the body right so I'm using theology of the body as conjecture to basically make statements about lilies I don't know jack shit about lilies in art history I'm, I'm picking up the baton where you're leaving it off I do know a decent amount about lilies in like Chinese art right and I think that that's really interesting because you don't unfortunately just because of the divides between the east and the west you don't often see a lot of complementarity between what a thing symbolizes in the west versus what a thing symbolizes in the east um you know like for another color example red means luck in china red means blood here right there's not a lot of intersection there but within christianity lucky blood a, though right well lucky blood Ooh, i like that that's a good that's a good that's another good punk name punk band name can we do yeah that? yeah, yeah. this blood? is very on brand for you too yeah yeah um but but in there in christianity anyway there's a ton of shared space in the venn diagram with what white represents in the east versus the west right because in the west it's purity in the east it's death and christ comes to make us pure through death and so right. there is this beautiful the lily can mean christ in both cultures because of the richness there and i i would argue that's part of why it's so popular as a symbol because you will see um i have some um my my sister is uh chinese she's from chongqing and and she uh her name is dedicated to anna wang who is one of the martyrs from the boxer rebellion which is like pre-communist oh, when cool when um like the chinese were basically bu being butchered by chiang kai-shek and the fascists that were defeated when the communists came in so china's got a long history um but there was you know this beautiful apparition of our lady in china and always depicted with lilies there um so there's there's in christian art across the globe even in not like um imagery that starts with like sort of caucasian um colonizing missionaries or whatever but in like original chinese religious christian art og shit there's even lilies appearing here in this really beautiful way and i would wow, i would argue I didn't it's, know that i would argue it's partially that right I, there's mm. probably a lot to it but i would argue it's mm. partially that that lilies are seen as this rich beautiful symbol of both purity and death in the respective cultures and christ brings those two themes together and then you add the song of song stuff then you add the passion imagery both romantic and um like crucifixion and and you add all the other stuff and it just becomes like toppings on an already pretty well established artistic sunday if you will that makes a lot of sense and like and again like in in uh as it's developed in christian art like you get this very i mean it's even chronological actually um that like christ hands the lily to the virgin mary you know mm -hmm. um with and this is actually like very theologically rich because he hands it to her without ever losing it himself you know like it expands mm -hmm. without 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 reduction um and yeah. uh and, there and is, that's it there's a but baton handing off just the same way that i'm picking up the baton you're handing me oh my oh, god are wow, we christ and beautiful. mary i, I hope not um <laughs> that's uh we, we are the reincarnation um <laughs> Actually, so I want to get into something with the uh, with the Renaissance really quickly about lilies. Um, but before we do that, the, uh, the that actually reminds me, we should give a shout out. Speaking of Renaissance, to um, our sponsor, uh, Catholic Creatives. 
and Catholic.store. We are brought to you by Catholic Creatives and Catholic.store. Um, let me tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Catholic Creatives, for its part, is an organization dedicated to igniting a new renaissance, there's that buzzword for you, um, of faith through prayer, beauty, and the creative spirit. Um, to do this, they connect, support, and promote artists, innovators, uh, makers, storytellers from kind of across the faith community. Um, but it does take a community to bring those ideas to life. Uh, so by supporting our Patreon, the Patreon for this podcast, um, you can directly support, be supporting uh, Catholic artists around the country, around the world even, um, while getting in, an inside track on these activities with access to our, our member-only Facebook group. Um, so to join, I'd encourage you to go to catholiccreatives.org forward slash support. Um, and then in addition... If you want to support us even further, um, check out some of the beautiful products created by, you know, Catholic makers, artisans, and artists all over the world at catholic.store. Um, there, there are going to be a lot of opportunities, especially, you know, this is Holy Week, you're going to be filling Easter baskets, you're going to be, you know, soon you're going to be buying uh, First Communion gifts, Confirmation gifts, uh, Baptism gifts, right? It's sacrament season. Don't go to like the Christian bookstore in your town if it's still open don't do it like go to independent <laughs> Put them out of business <laughs> seriously we don't we don't need them we we what we need is for you to support local catholic artists who are painting sculpting writing in their own houses in their own kitchens with their own families and you can do that again by going to catholic.store um, and supporting us that way so do visit catholic.store and uh, catholiccreators.org forward slash support today um back to the renaissance thing but I want to throw out old I'm Renaissance, curious, not new Renaissance, not new Renaissance. Yeah. The first one. Um, so I have a theory here. It could hold zero water. Do it. I want to like preface cause this is purely conjecture on my part. You are a medievalist. I am not. Um, I am an armchair mythologist ish, but that is a generous thing to say of me more. I'm just a nerd for folklore. Um, there is a motif in, Greco-Roman mythology of the lily as well. Hmm. That lilies are the symbol of Apollo. Um, oh, okay. Okay. And now I want to preface this by saying there, there is often, and I wonder as kind of a historian, if you'd agree with me on this, you, you actually might disagree, but so there's this, there's this thing in the way we view world mythologies that I think is actually Christianity's fault. Um, that is very, very wrong, which is that, there is any kind of reciprocity between what we mean when we say God and what a lot of ancient cultures meant when they said God's plural. Um, the, I, I think that's Christianity's fault because a lot of monks who documented and wrote like Christian monks who wrote about retrospectively, retroactively about like ancient folklores and ancient mythologies kind of wanted to impart on all of it a Christiany glaze, uh, you know, milieu, if you will, um, because they, they, they kind of want in the same way that I was saying that like all nature has to represent God, you know, there is this desire. And I think it's an authentic one to see ancient religions as sort of foreshadowing Christ and, and everything kind of comes together there, but you can take that theme too far and you can inadvertently look at like Zeus as having any reciprocity with with God when it's far more historically and sort of folklorically accurate, anthropologically accurate to, to assume that the ancient peoples viewed someone like Zeus or Apollo, the same way we view like a George Washington or a Davy Crockett. That is to say like a historical figure, a great 
man, quote unquote, a warrior with a ton of like folklore around them, like that they chopped down cherry trees and killed bears when they were three years old and all these sorts of things. That is much more the ancient conception of a God, right? But that said, um, even with that said, uh, Apollo, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of viewed as, um, as somewhat foreshadowing of Christ in part because of this lens that I'm talking about where monks really, really, really are working overtime to create bridges between ancient thought and Christian thought where they, when they aren't there. Um, and this is true worth like, um, St. Thomas Beckett, like his seal is the God Apollo, right? Even though he doesn't, you know, like he's not a pagan, he's a devout Christian person, but he's also, he fancies himself an academic, right? He is an academic. And so he wants to show he's got, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in England, he wants to show that he's got this appreciation for, you know, the old world and the, the Roman empire, Greco Roman empire. And so he seals all his letters with, with the seal of Apollo. Um, and, and this is because I think that Apollo is seen as foreshadowing Christ because Apollo you know, Paul is the one who leads the chariot that is the sun around the orbit, right? I, I believe right. that's the case. Um, but Apollo is also because of his relation to the sun. He's seen, and I'm, I'm going to quote um, Britannica.com directly here. Apollo, because I do wanted it. to get the only authority. To, well, I wanted to get it. I wanted to get the words exactly right because I'm not a mythologist. But they, they, um, from the time of Homer onward, it says Apollo was the god of divine distance. This is primarily the thing that he represents, right? So if, if Zeus is the God of the skies, Apollo is the God of divine distance. He's the God that makes mortals aware of their own guilt and purifies them of it. And he presides over religious law and the constitutions of civilizations. Um, and he also communicates with mortals, any knowledge they have of the future and of the will of his father, Zeus. And so there is this, there's really, at least with, at least with the historical and by, by historical read Christian understanding of ancient mythology, there is this very like, Ooh, Apollo is sort of like prototype Jesus. You know, when they believed in Apollo, the Greco Romans were really longing for Jesus. And so they inadvertently created some of this kind of foreshadowing mythology. And, and this all gets me back around via a winding path to the fact that Apollo in Greek mythology creates the lily to, oh. to soften the path of the nymphs who are betrothed to him. So he like creates a carpet of lilies for them to walk upon. And so in this proto Christological figure, again, going back to everything we said about lilies being a symbol of the romance, the eros between God and man, between Christ and his church, right? There is also this feeling of Apollo gifting lilies to his brides for them to walk upon. And so even in antiquity, at least again, because we're reading all of this mythology through a Christian lens because it's the Christian monks who document this stuff. But it, even taking that with a grain of salt, lilies even pre-Christian are seen in this way that we're talking about. That was a very yeah. long thing. Do would you you poke any holes in any of that? Um, I uh, well, so you know, quick, 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 like oh, things, but like <laughs> a thousand of them. But uh, but no, it's but I think it's an interesting idea, and certainly in Christian art history, you know, um, already dramatically in the fourth century, you have um, when Christian artists 
or artists who are making things for Christians doesn't mean that they're always Christian themselves. In fact, usually they're not, at least in the you know third and fourth century, um, or a lot of times they're not. Um, you know, you you have to use some kind of visual language that you're that you as a like you're a you make mosaics or you're a painter, you know, and like some guy comes to you and he, and he's like, paint Jesus. And, the, and you're like, um, okay, so how do I do that? Uh, and they're like, well, he's like this. And he, you know, he, he's, he's a bit like a lily. In a bit like a lily, way. just a guy though. And, um, uh, and so they, they, they use visual ideas that they're familiar with from other things. Um, and they get a lot of them kind of get adapted and, and modified in really interesting ways. Um, so one of the major strands of the ways in which Christ gets um, depicted physically is coming from Apollo. Um, other also kind of like personal savior gods um, in the Greco Roman tradition. Um, but a lot of Apollo um, there's a different strain strand of uh, of depiction of Christ that comes from like Zeus and other kind of like powerful bearded gods, you know. Um, but <laughs> emphasis uh, on the bearded that's like yeah. the main intersection in the Venn diagram for sure. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, when he's depicted like from stuff with Apollo, he's not going to have a beard because um, Apollo doesn't have a beard. Sure. Um. So, uh, so there, so there is this, which is very interesting. Like, um, yeah, a lot there. There are these. Um, uh greek gods who like in give a kind of visual language for early christians um in fact there's there's they're really interesting um there's really interesting uh, evidence uh of like early christians not being a hundred percent certain sometimes if a given image was like apollo zeus or christ and also like early non-christians also being fairly certain that this image of Christ was an image of Apollo or sometimes Zeus, depending. Um, so, you know, because you just got to use what you, what you have to work with and Christ develops a more particular iconography over the course of time. But that's a whole that's a whole different episode. Um, but um, but yeah, so I think that's a, that's a really interesting way to think about that. I didn't know about the association between Apollo and, and, and the lily, but um, but it's not totally far fetched. I mean, like uh, the fact that all the, these things would also then be kind of looped in Um uh chesterton has this really beautiful book gk chesterton has a really beautiful book called the everlasting man um in which he sort of makes this it's this it's this really grand kind of argument that only can chesterton can make about the way in which like kind of all mythology is this like a longing for christ it's like the human the human like a child telling stories um about something that he like the thing that he most desires in the world and like kids telling stories like sometimes that's really great um with just some weird things off and other times it's like really psycho scary and like other times it's you know really fantastic um and he says like but the true story the true story is christianity you know um uh which is really great um all these other stories all these other folklores and mythologies are only true insofar as they mirror some detail about the christian story it's like the heart trying to tell the story of christ but because we can't invent christ on our own it fails in various ways even if it has beauty to it um so but that's i think that's but you that's really great to point out like there are um and whether whether this is directly genealogically um conceptually or, or or historically um a direct influence or not um it doesn't really matter because it's the, the the thing that's valuable here is to point to the way in which 
um, like all these different valences about the way that the lily just kind of has this power in the heart that like you want to be thinking about these ways. And so like it's so strongly associated with Apollo. Christ starts to take Apollo's Im- images and ideas. Early Christians are very certain that Christ is the lily of the valley, that he's the one who speaks and identifies himself as such. Um, all of these associations with grace and gift and the gift to humanity and all these things. Um, I don't see that there's any reason to think that um, there's certainly there. Why, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? Let me just put oh, it that you way. know what I did? I forgot. Actually, I forgot something really cool here when I was talking about white as a symbol of death in Chinese thought or in Chinese symbolism. Um, I forgot to mention that lilies are, I'm going to mess this up because I don't actually, I used to speak a little bit of Mandarin. This was, this was my like one other language and I don't at all anymore. I remember no thank you. And that's all I remember. But, um, but, um, base. So lilies are the traditional flower giving at a, given at a wedding in China. Oh, okay. And the, the reason this is basically a pun that the, the term for lily in, I believe Cantonese is, um, which is sort of like the common, the common tongue in China is, um, the word for Lily sounds a lot like the old proverb. You will have happiness for a hundred years. Oh, um, sure. Like yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah. there's sort of like a, a sound alike of a phoneme sound alike thing happening. And so Lily's again, have this romantic sense behind them that you're, you're, you're being given to the bridegroom and you're going to experience happiness for a hundred years. That is to say for a very long time, for eternity. Right. And so even here in, in Chinese symbolism, I'm so, I'm, I'm so mad at myself that I forgot to bring this up when I was first talking about it. There is this white of death, but the flower of love and romance and being given over as the bride to the bridegroom. And so just over and over and over and over and over again, when we're talking about Greco Roman symbolism, whether we're talking about far Eastern symbolism, whether we're talking about medieval and Renaissance symbolism, um, there's the Renaissance thing I was mentioning, you know, cause probably there was this huge re or definitely there was this huge revisit of Apollo theming in, in the Renaissance, right. With Thomas right, Beck and stuff. Right. Right. Um, but no matter where you go, you know, spin the spin the wheel of fortune in your time machine. Wherever you go, lilies are going to have the kind of this same symbolism that can be within two or three degrees of Kevin Bacon brought back to Christ. Right, and it's and it becomes yeah, that's a, that's a helpful point, and it becomes really dramatically clear in like by the time you get to about the 13th century in Christian art. Um, so Christ is Christ by say the eighth century or so has um. Uh, Especially well, especially by like by the eighth and then the eleventh century in visual art, especially like Christ has handed the the lily to the Virgin Mary, and it's like a major attribute of hers now, like her mm. version of purity, her chastity, her relationship with Christ, you know, um, all of this. Uh, but then by the thirteenth century, he handing it to her then hands it to everybody else. Uh, sure, and then by yeah. the 13th century, uh, it becomes a really common attribute for all kinds of other saints. Um, sure, yeah. like St. Joseph, St. Dominic, my boy, St. Dominic, um, and, uh, Catherine of Siena and Thomas Aquinas and not to be then, confused like, a bunch with of Franciscans. Ca- not to be confused with St. Catherine of Burnt Siena, who's patron of Burnt Aquinas. Siena. No, it's incredible. Yeah, that's right. She's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is unburnt Siena, just straight up. And, uh, She's a, uh, 
and all this stuff. And they, what, the, the, the thing that holds in common for all of them is that um, these are all saints who are associated with like remarkable um, sort of sexual purity and chastity in their in their lives. Um, that their whole person um, is uh, again like not this privation, not like, oh, they're defined by what they don't do, which is like, oh, no, they don't have sex. And so like we say, that's great. Isn't that fantastic? Hashtag but this whole no thing fat. is Hashtag gross. Gross. <laughs> um, that like, that everything about their lives is like suffused with this presence whom like the virgin Mary has handed to them, whom which they have received from Christ, which she has received from Christ. This like life giving, this like life of um that's his because he's the one who's the lily of the valley, but then it's also like his beloved who's the lily among thorns, you know. Well, and um, I, I wanna dig in. I mean it's it's I it's hopefully explicit already from everything we've been talking about, but I even want to dig in when you say like it becomes associated with these saints, so this radical purity. Like it's it's very easy from a non educated perspective to to assume, okay, they're white purity this saint is pure, so it stops there. But no, because the, again, the Catholic conception of this radical chastity these people are living is that it, it's bringing them in greater eros, that romantic desire, to God. And so right. like, it's right. not, oh, Lily's oh, they white, no pure, feelings. they have no feelings, they're static, they're... Like, I know a lot of Catholics who think that, and it's really, really sad because they're buying mm. into heresies, right? They're they're buying yeah, not into good. a... Not good. Inadvertently, they're buying into heresies that deny the body, that deny the good inherent goodness of desire, that, that deny Christ's love for our physicality and our bodies. And whether you want to call that Jansenism or Pelagianism or Manichaeism, honestly, freaking take your pick. They're all basically versions of the same Hydra. But... Um, you know, there there is no actually the richness of the the eros, the erotic love that these saints have for Christ that compels them to be chaste in this life and and therefore associates them so perfectly with the lily literally from the Song of Songs. Right. Exactly. Like this is what makes them the lily among thorns, you know, that like so rad. Um, yeah, that's right. Exactly. This is that this is strictly speaking life and life more abundant. You know, um, before we wrap up, cause this has been a kind of a whirlwind conversation and I can't believe we're already past an hour in. Um, but before we wrap up, I, I would love to hear, I would love to get a second to touch on with the very little bit that I know, know about Monet and sort of ham fistedly connected to what we're talking about here. Since I did preview water lilies and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up and you know, not having too many references outside of Monet of specific artistic depictions of lilies um, of my own i would love to hear if you can recall any any of your 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 particular favorite artistic depictions of lilies that you'd like to share just for people to like go and check out and maybe meditate on um while you think about that or you know rapidly uh, google search off camera i um yeah. i will say you know so so i don't know anything really about monet's spiritual club monet's spirituality um, I was, it was honestly a shock to me when we did the episode with the folks from salt project about Van Gogh's spirituality. That was really revelatory to me. Um, so who knows Monet could have a similar experience of faith, but I will say, so, so again, most people think of water lilies as one painting. It's not, it's a series of 250 paintings, most of them on like these ungodly large canvases, just truly They're huge, drunk, just oh my gosh, huge they, yeah. canvases. Um, and every single one is like this. Um, what people don't know about Monet, or many, many people don't know about Monet and, and why and when he painted these, was that his wife had died. So he was, he was personally struggling with these ideas of love and death 
Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah. he had been gifted this parcel of land. Um, I don't know how to pronounce French. I think it's Giverny. Is it Giverny that he did this at? Giverny. I don't, I don't Wait, know. Could you, could you actually, could you say it again, but this time snap your suspenders while you're doing it? Yeah. Giverny. Thank I'm just a you. small yes. town lawyer who don't never been to no Parisian places, but I can say that Giverny is where Claude Monet done painted his best work, and um, he planted each of those lilies. Those were not in a way. Those weren't a thing that he like stumbled upon. He diverted a river, personally, to build a little pond, and he planted those lilies. And maybe this is me doing the very thing that I'm sort of tongue-in-cheekedly um, um, criticizing medieval monks for when they like sort of ham-fistedly try to connect almost too much, almost at the expense of Christianity, um, Christianity to, to uh, pre-Christian pagan thought. But there seems to me to be so many of those same themes that we're talking about with lilies, and beyond that, the themes that we talk about with God as artist— in Monet's experience. I mean, he has these horrible cataracts. He's been famous for so long that most people actually believe he's dead by this, by the point he's painting water lilies. Seriously. The public perception is that Monet has been dead for a while. Um, really? And he, and, 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 and yet he is in grieving his wife in experiencing again, the romance and death that every culture has apparently found. So, so central to the theme of lilies as a symbol, he is planting every one of these lilies with intentionality and love the way God the Father creates creation, the way God the Father creates us. You know, I know every hair on your head, right? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And then he is, through his own blurry vision, again, maybe I'm going too far, maybe I'm stretching too far, but through the blurry vision that spiritually we all have, he is stretching to understand the juxtaposition of love and death of, of Eros and Thanatos. Um, and, and in his struggle to do that is painting, um, 250 gigantic freaking huge oil paintings of lilies divorced from the context of sky or landscape. Right. right. And, and just studying this as a symbol through his fractured gaze and whether he meant it as a spiritual analogy or not, I do think, as I'm saying here, it sums up our own spiritual experience. Like lilies, sure, are given to Mary and then given unto us, like in the sense that like those graces that lilies represent are given to lilies and then unto us. Um, but we stare at them through through spiritual cataracts and we stare yeah. at them struggling to understand the dichotomy of of love and death and Eros and Thanatos. And, and we come... And yet, even in that, by God's grace as creator, as artist, I would argue we come to create something with our own lives. It's as beautiful and as massive and as kind of startlingly impressive as 250 oil paintings. I don't know. That's awesome. Yeah, that's Maybe great. That's no, I love romantical. it. I love it. No, I'm, I, I accept. I accept all of that. I don't I know, though. You don't, you, you, I, was th I thought you might not because you hate capital R romanticism and capital S sentimentality. And I think that's exclusively what I just farted out there. But I like it. Yeah, so well, you. you know, he's a, come on. He's a 19th century French thinker. Like, what are you going to do, dude? I mean, like, there it is. Like, I mean, you got you to gotta, you gotta be, gotta be true to the source you material, you know? You got to meet people where um, they're at, brother. You got to meet the people where they're at. Yeah, that's right. I would, uh, I want to, I just want, I want to, I want to, that's great. I don't want to add anything to that. I think that's awesome. Uh, the, like my, my contribution, um, for people's reflection would be, um, I'm also going to have to, um, do a little, uh, 
gonna have to get my suspenders ready too because this is this is from a painter called Pedro Baraghetti. <laughs> um, so it's he's Spanish. Um, uh, if uh, longtime listeners, CF, uh, the trip to Spain episode. Uh, when I went to Spain, um, I. The Prado, the museum in Madrid has like just all of these paintings by like Dominicans. Um, you know, we have like a lot of painters and stuff who painted like really beautiful stuff, but like there, there, you know, there's a handful of things that you just kind of become very familiar with that like, like terrible reproductions everywhere, you know, and like I walked into this room and like all of them were there only like not cheap reproductions, but the real thing um, of these like really standard like re- lovely um images about dominicans um oh cool and this guy pedro Berruguete, it's b-e-b-e-r-r-u-g-u-e-t-e boy i, I don't, I don't understand your booga booga language spelling stuff what is this school <laughs> anyway it's so cool because he's being so offensive Dominic. to anyone even vaguely so are like a, a, so much of our listenership is in texas and we're just flipping hey, them off vocally hey, right no, now texas is its own thing and they have uh they have a glorious pride and they don't need me to defend them because texas defends itself they will shoot you in the head. There, there you go. There you go. Upcycling. Yeah. My Texas doesn't need some, me. You know, compliment. Good for you. Yeah. 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 They don't need me to defend them. Anyway, um, so they got these Dominican paintings in the Prado. So there's this incredible image of St. Dominic. Um, not to be. Yeah. So there's an incredible image of St. Dominic where he's just standing. Um, and uh, he's just kind of standing like a bro. It's just a whole a whole body length po- uh, image. And um, uh, in one hand, he has a Bible that is open and out of it is growing three lilies. Ooh, which is awesome. So he's associated with, with like lily purity, all this stuff, but it's, it's growing out of the word, which is really cool. Um, so he's not, he's, he's often holding lilies, but in this he's holding the book and the book is producing the lilies, which is really, really cool. And then, but he's got two hands, right? So what's he doing with the other hand? Well, the other hand, he's holding this staff, um, that has a cross on it. Um, on the top is very beautifully ornately done cross. Um, that he's just kind of, it looks like he's just sort of like gently resting. He's at a, at a, at a diagonal. But if you look down to his feet, he is stabbing a demon dog who is on fire. <laughs> while calmly holding his book with his lilies. Oh god. I this is the thing about Christian art is like it's only subtle because in modernity we're too obtuse to know the very obvious imagery it's referencing like only if you don't know everything we've said about lilies do you look at that painting and go that's subtle at all if you know anything about symbolism though you look at that painting and go a 14 year old drew this because this has zero nuance i love everything about it it's just like i mean this is this is why i love medieval art of course is because like as you know i mean uh like my episcopal motto uh would be like too much is never enough you know um oh i love it i love yeah it. exactly um uh and this is just like a medieval artist like this like too much is never enough you know um we'll just do we'll just do more like do you love that that, that like this is the saint of perfect purity and that he he receives his perfect purity like from the song of songs like christ speaking to him from the from the word speaking to him through the virgin mary and then handing it to him and it grows out of his love for the word and it grows in him as his living pursuit that he is the one who is the lily who becomes like christ's grace uh and 
being shaped to the Virgin Mary, like the lily among thorns, um, that this becomes the way in which he preaches um, among thorns and like produces uh, beautiful flowers and beautiful life there. Um, and then, of course, when you do that, what you are doing is you are stabbing flaming demon dogs with the cross. And that's Christianity. Hell yeah, dude. I'm curious, is, are you serious though? Is that, is that actually like the motto of your priesthood? Like if I came through on my threat to like pull some blackmail shit and get you named a bishop against your will, that would like be engraved on your ring or something? I have, I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts. There's a, I, I have, one of my friends and I uh, have a running, have a running tally of like fake Episcopal mottos that we would use if we ever, if we ever had to have an Episcopal motto. That's only one of them. But that's, but that's like top three maybe. I, I love because I love that one. I think there's it's there's so real good. Truth in that. It's so good. Well, look, if whether or not it ends up on your bishopric ring, um, I think it should be one of the mottos of this podcast. So look, guys, you know, there's never enough Easter lilies on your altar uh, this weekend. So put a bunch more up and there's never enough time to meditate on all the kinds of things we're talking about today. So spend as much of it as you can. And there isn't, uh, you know, there isn't any love that's going to be enough other than the love of Christ that's represented in these lilies. And we encourage you to never settle for too much and to go forth and create cool things. You've been listening to Created Things, a podcast of Catholic creatives, hosted by Father Gabriel Toretta OP and Jacob Flores Popcheck, produced by Jessica Flores Popcheck and Kyle Meineke. To find out more about how you can support the podcast and other ventures for artists, visit catholiccreatives.org forward slash support.